Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance and direction on our time in his word this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your word. As the psalmist said, it is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, and it is only on the basis of your word that we are able to truly and accurately understand and interpret the events of our lives and the events that go on around us. And It is only on the basis of your word that we are then able to have real stability in our own thinking and in our own lives as we ground our thinking, our lives, our actions upon the certainties of your word. Father, as we study your word today, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our souls to the truth of your word, that we may clearly see how these things apply to our own spiritual life and spiritual growth, that we may be strengthened and encouraged in our own spiritual life, and that God the Holy Spirit would use this to uh, uh, mature us and to advance us in our spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 2 Kings chapter 11. 2 Kings chapter 11. Yesterday morning, most of us woke up, turned on the television perhaps or the radio and heard the news that a massive earthquake had hit Chile. Just a couple of months ago, we heard the news, or a month or so ago, we heard the news about another massive earthquake that hit in Haiti. We've witnessed uh, hurricanes and storms here on the Gulf Coast. We've seen other events that have happened uh, historically, uh, whether it has to do with economics, such as the collapse of the markets last year or other such unexpected turns. And when we look at the chaos that actually surrounds us in, in our own lives individually, as we perhaps face unexpected uh, situations in life, whether they have to do with relationships or jobs or health, uh, we often wonder how we face and can handle all the vicissitudes of life, all the things that constantly change. Everything seems to be in a state of flux and chaos. And how can we have any real sense of certainty and stability when everything around us and everything we experience constantly changes? 
Well, the only source of stability, the only source of certainty is in God, in the character of God. And the one word that really captures that is his faithfulness. He is faithful. That means, especially if you do an analysis of the Hebrew words that undergird the word that's, uh, that undergird the idea of, of faithfulness, has the idea of that which is completely stable, that which is unshakable or immovable. And so when we speak of the faithfulness of God, we speak of the only thing in all of reality that is certain that will never, ever change and that we can count on no matter how uh, chaotic the events of life are around us. It is the faithfulness of God that undergirds all of his promises, his magnificent promises that he has given us in his word that Peter writes about saying that it is by them that we are able to uh, share in the uh, attributes of God as his character is developed in us and through us by God the Holy Spirit. It is God's faithfulness that reminds us that at all times, no matter what the circumstances may be, that the God who oversees history is the same God that oversees our individual lives. And even though we may be surprised by things that happen uh, on a day-to-day basis, it should not be the kind of thing that shakes us up too much because we should be standing on the unshakable character of God. And so uh, as we look at this whole doctrine in light of what we're studying in First Kings, we should be reminded of how important our relationship is to God, and then we should be able to recognize that when we are in circumstances that are ever-changing around us, that we can do the same thing that an Israelite believer could do back in the uh, ninth century or ninth century B.C. as they was witnessing all of the chaos that surrounded them as we studied the last few weeks as God finally brought about his judgment upon the house of Ahab and how that shook the foundations, the political foundations and economic foundations of both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. If you put yourself, if we were to put ourselves in the place of any of those believers that lived in either the northern kingdom or southern kingdom, we would uh, realize that they had no idea what would take place the next day. There was no, there was no certainty. They had gone through extensive periods of drought, famine, military defeat. Everything indeed was very unstable. There was no real sense of security because the nation as a whole, the people as a whole, had rejected God, turned away from God, and so God was uh, disciplining them. The only hope in times like that is to think through the essence of God. Who is God? And every time that we face these kinds of crises in life, it's a tremendous exercise just to go back and reflect upon the character and attributes of God. Morgan, the sun is coming off of somebody's windshield over there and hitting me right in the eye. In between that and the cold, I'm having challenges this morning. So whenever we have challenges, we have to go to the essence of God. Think through his attributes. First of all, God is sovereign. That means he rules in the affairs of man. 
that does, it's still too, not, not low enough. You need to drop it down about a foot, 12 to 18 inches. There you go. God is sovereign. He rules in the affairs of man, and ultimately God is the one who controls history, and he controls it in a way that does not make a little bit lower. And to your right, <laughs> your military right. God controls history in a way that does not make robots or automatons out of us, but he, but in light of our own individual choices and responsible choices, thank you very much. God is the one who uh, works out his plans and his purposes. God is also righteous. His righteousness is the standard, the absolute standard of right and wrong in the universe. And it is on the basis of that standard. We're having challenges today. For those watching, the that which was hung up to block the sun fell. Righteousness is the absolute standard of God's character, and justice is the application of that standard to his creatures. So we have an absolute standard that uh, it never changes. And it is always applied consistently in the affairs of men. And we have to start with that because sometimes we may look at circumstances and think that perhaps God has somehow become involved in some other situation in, uh, in the world and he's ignoring the injustice in our own lives. But we always have to uh, remember that these attributes do not operate in isolation from other attributes, and the righteousness and justice of God also work in perfect harmony with his love. And his justice is always executed in light of his love, and his love is always consistent with his righteousness. That's why his love is is unique, because it is a love that is based on absolute and perfect virtue. And a love that has no virtue is not love at all. And that is why human love is often so tenuous, is because there's no virtue to undergird it. God is also eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Then we have the three O's. He is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. In his omniscience, he knows all the knowable. He knows everything that might happen, everything that could happen. He knows all of the what-ifs. And so God is able to handle every. Uh, and provide for every circumstance and situation because of his omniscience and wisdom. He is omnipresent, which means he is present to all aspects of his creation at every moment and every instant, and so he is never far from us. He is never distant from us. He is always immediately present to us, and he is omnipotent, which means he is always able to accomplish that which he intends to accomplish, and he is able to handle and surmount any challenge that faces his plan or his purposes. He is also uh, tr- absolute truth or veracity, and therefore that works together with his righteousness and his justice and his love in terms of his personal integrity. He is absolute truth. He is truth resides within his thinking, so he is what he does is always consistent with truth, and he is unchangeable or immutable. Now, when we think about these attributes, 
we need to go a step further sometimes. It's not just a matter of stopping and thinking, okay, I can list these ten attributes, but what do they mean? How do these attributes then apply to a particular circumstance or situation that we face in life? Think about what is going on in the ancient world at the time of the events of Second Kings 11. If you were a citizen of Israel living in the northern kingdom, and suddenly you woke up one morning and you heard that uh, the king had gone to battle with uh, the Hazael, the king of Syria, and there's a major battle taking place on the across the Jordan at Ramoth Gilead, and that the king is wounded. Suddenly now everything becomes uncertain. Who's going? Is he going to live? Is he going to die? If he dies, what will happen to the battle? And then he, you hear that he comes back to. Uh, he's brought back to Jezreel, but he is seriously, uh, seriously wounded. And then you hear that uh, a coup is being staged by one of his generals who claims that he has been anointed by God. And he comes back, and as he comes back to Jezreel, he kills, he uh, uh, assassinates or executes um, the king, Jehoram, at the command of God, and then he kills not only the king of Israel, but the king of the southern kingdom who's up there as well. Uh, Ahaziah kills him. And then he, you hear that he is sending out his hit squads to execute all of the other uh, descendants and relatives of the former king uh, Ahab. And so a bloodbath is taking place in not only the northern kingdom, but you hear that there are other things that are going on down in the southern kingdom. And so it seems as if the world may be falling apart around you and there's no sense of stability. What in the world is God uh, is, is God doing? So then we have to think through these attributes in terms of God's immutability. He's made certain promises to Abraham and to David, he uh, operates according to the covenant he made with Moses. And because God is never changing, because he is immutable, we can relax and know that when everything is falling apart around us, that we can rely upon God. We know that he is omnipotent so that he is able to handle whatever challenges there may be to his plan. And as time goes by and we hear of other things that are going on, we realize that Something, uh, 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 something more significant spiritually is happening, and that is that there seems to be a, an assault upon the descendants of David as they have been wiped out by one king after another, and so the, the line of David seems to be in jeopardy, but God is able to protect the seed of David, protect his plan, to bring about that which he has promised. God is so powerful that he can control the details from the micro uh, to the macro. Uh, We think in terms of his omniscience that whatever the circumstances may be presented by human decisions, God's not taken by surprise. It may surprise us. We may be faced with completely unexpected circumstances, but they're not a surprise to God, and he has planned and prepared for these circumstances from eternity past. And then we remember that all of this relies upon the integrity of God. The very core of his essence, I think, 
the relationship of his righteousness, justice, love, and truth. And these attributes we often find related together in the Scripture. For example, this morning I read in Psalm 89, verse 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy, or loving kindness, the Hebrew word chesed, uh, mercy and truth go before your faith. And so we see the connection between these attributes stated again and again in Scripture. Also in Psalm 40, verse 10, we read, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. Notice the contrast in that verse. In the first statement, he talks about what he has not done. He has not hidden or kept secret uh, the righteousness of God, but he has proclaimed it. And when he restates that in the next uh, paragraph, so we have... Uh, we have a parallelism here that is referred to as as a uh, parallelism of, of the antonym or the opposite. Instead, he hasn't hidden righteousness. He has declared, but in the next stanza there, righteousness is replaced by faithfulness and salvation so that the expression of God's righteousness comes through his faithfulness as exhibited in ultimately his salvation and deliverance. And in this context, it is not talking about the salvation of the cross, although that would be an application. It's talking about a a specific act of deliverance in the life of the psalmist. It goes on to say, I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth. Notice how loving kindness or mercy, grace, uh, truth, Faithfulness, righteousness are all brought together again within this uh, particular uh, this particular verse, emphasizing the uh, the integrity of God uh, once again. So these attributes come together. Now, often modern man has a difficult time understanding how love and righteousness go together. Has a tendency to somehow uh, define love in a superficial way and then uses that to somehow negate righteousness and justice. And so for modern man, there are uh, apparent conflicts between these uh, attributes, but not in the mind of God. In the character of God, we see that uh, one of the attributes, one of the words that reflects, expresses these attributes is faithfulness, ties many of them together. And the main idea of uh, faithfulness, as I said before, is stability. Now, God's love for us is a faithful love. That's the meaning of that Hebrew word translated mercy in the New King James Version. In the New American Standard, it often translates it loving kindness. It's the Hebrew word chesed, which has the idea of loyal, faithful love. It's a love that is dependent upon, it's a love that is dependent upon God's character, and he is always faithful to his promise, always faithful faithful to his covenant, and it is a love that, it, that never changes. Now, part of that love involves God's judgment or discipline upon his people. Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 is a quotation from Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, demonstrating that this is an eternal truth that is was true both in the 
Old Testament period in the dispensation of Israel as well as in the church age. In Hebrews 12.5, we read, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And then there's the quote from Proverbs 3.11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Now, see, modern man sees that as something that is uh, irreconcilable. If you love somebody, you're certainly not going to harshly discipline them or judge them. In fact, we have states who are passing uh, legislation against uh, parents who may apply corporal punishment to their children in the form of spanking. Now, there are those who have abused that and go too far, and we understand that, but the very principle of spanking is a biblical one. He who spares the rod spoils the child, the proverb says. Part of God's love for Israel includes discipline. Part of God's love for you includes discipline and judgment on us whenever we are disobedient to him and do not come back to him in terms of confession and in terms of obedience. And the more we are out of fellowship and rebellious, then the more it increases the uh, possibility of uh, extreme divine discipline. So we see that part of love involves discipline and judgment. Now, as we saw last time in our study, the last uh, couple of weeks in our study of Kings, as well as uh, when we looked last time in Second Kings, we covered three chapters. We covered chapters, most of chapter 8, 9, and 10, and we saw this uh, tremendous bloodbath of judgment that occurred as Hazael comes and you have a military incursion and then there's Jehu is unleashed on the house of Ahab and there's a bloodbath on all who are related to Ahab and, and his descendants. And then at the end of that section, we learn that uh, the northern kingdom lost much of its territory uh, to Syria, God bringing judgment against the northern kingdom. Now, as we think about these concepts, when we think about God's judgment, we have to recognize that in the thinking of the world around us, that this kind of judgment, and hundreds of people were, were executed and slaughtered in very violent and bloody ways in, in those, those judgments, that this appears to be very harsh, and so they operate on some sort of autonomous or independent view of what love is and righteousness is, and so they, they come back and they say, well, this isn't a very loving God who's going to send somebody like Jehu around to kill everybody, and it just shows a very distorted uh, concept of sin and evil. That is the basic problem. It's not just a problem of not being able to understand love, but it is based on a prior confusion, and that is a confusion about what evil is. And at the very heart of much false religion and many of the modern uh, ideologies that shape various worldviews is a denial of the reality of evil. I think that's one of the things that really irritated a lot of people about uh, former President Bush is that after 9-11, he came out and labeled those who committed those atrocities on 9-11 as evildoers, believing in an absolute category of evil. And much 
of modern man and, and the uh, pseudo-intellectualism that dominates the uh, universities uh, in our country and in West, Western civilization have completely rejected the notion of real substantive evil. And so they live in a fantasy world. We have to recognize that when we fail to believe in real substantive evil, then we put ourselves at incredible risk for self-destruction. And um, I'm using the term we here as an editorial we. Let me give you an illustration. If we deny the existence of cancer, we just say, you know, cancer doesn't exist. There's no such thing as cancer. There's no such thing as, uh, as, as malignancy and this kind of physical disease. It just doesn't exist. It's just a, uh, an illusion. Uh, we're sort of operating on a platonic view of reality here, something that characterized uh, Christian science or some kind of thinking like that, that this thing doesn't exist. It's, it's not real. Then when we deny that that exists, then we would engage in behavior that would put us at risk for cancer. We don't believe cancer exists, then you may engage in all kinds of behavior that would uh, make you very susceptible to cancer. And so the reality is that when you deny the existence of something, then you engage in behavior that puts you at risk for being destroyed by the very thing that you deny. And that is what is happening in Western civilization. We have denied the real substantive existence of evil. We're living in a fantasy world created by our own imagination. And so we refuse to label terrorists as terrorists. We refuse to recognize the real evil and violence that exists at the very core of Islamic theology and the teaching in the Quran, and so we are not willing to face things as they truly are, and we will make decisions that will put us at risk to be destroyed by the very thing that we deny exists. And so when we build our lives on any kind of fantasy, on any kind of illusion, then it's just building a house of cards, and eventually things will happen that will tear down that house of cards. Now, the Word of God clearly teaches us about evil and the destructiveness of evil. And because evil is so destructive, so horrible, and it often masquerades as that which is fairly benign. For example, who would have ever thought that eating a piece of fruit would produce famines and wars and earthquakes and all of the horrible things that we have seen in history, but that's exactly what happened because Adam disobeyed God and he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just a simple innocuous act, and yet it resulted in such horrible unintended, uh, unintended consequences. But because evil is so substantive and so seductive, and so destructive. There are times in history when God has to excise that evil with major surgery that often appears to be uh, quite violent to uh, the unbeliever. We think of examples in Scripture as the flood of Noah, uh, the Tower of Babel, Later on, there's the judgment, the destruction of the of Sodom and Gomorrah because of the evil that existed there. There were historical judgments on evil civilizations such as Babylon, ancient Babylon, and 
Egypt and Assyria. And all of this manifested God's sovereign control over history and that at times God has to insert himself into human history in order to excise the cancer of evil so that the human race does not destroy itself. Now, those judgments that we saw last time fit within that same category, within the uh, culture of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of, of Judah, a horrible spiritual malignancy was threatening to destroy the people of God, the people that God had called to be a kingdom of priests, his holy people who would represent him uh, to the world, the people through whom God was giving his word, people that, who were designated as the custodians of divine revelation and through whom the Savior of the world would come. And so now it is time for God to perform major surgery in an extremely violent way. And this is in order to protect man. Love has these two elements, that which provides blessing, that which also provides judgment. Let me give you an example of this. Two verses we have in the New Testament that are frequently quoted in terms of the gospel. John 3.16, and here I have enhanced the translation a little bit to give you an idea of what the Greek, uh, what the Greek indicates. For God loved the world in this manner. Usually it's translated God so loved the world, but that indicates maybe degree, and it's really the adverb there indicates uh, in this manner, in this way. So what we have here is an example of God's love and how he loved the world. God so loved the world in this manner. He gave his unique, one-of-a-kind son that whosoever believes in him has everlasting life or eternal life. Romans 5.8 echoes that thought, but God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In both of these passages, we have an emphasis on the love of God, and we rightly rejoice in the love of God because this has provided for us our incredible salvation, that God in his love provided a Savior who would, could give us eternal life and who would pay the penalty for our sin. But the very act of his love that provided such a great salvation for us provided a horrific judgment and suffering on the eternal second person of the Trinity. The Lord Jesus Christ bore in his body on the tree our sin, our sin was imputed to him. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. We cannot imagine the horror, the suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ went through during those three hours from 12 noon to 3 p.m. when darkness covered the cross, and he bore in his body the, the, the pain, the punishment, the legal penalty of our sin. All of our sin concentrated in one super dose aimed directly at the Lord Jesus Christ during which time he was our substitute and paid that penalty for us. The love that we rejoice over that gives us a free salvation was a love that also had to bring judgment upon someone because of the righteousness and the justice of God. 
And so love then always includes judgment because real love is built on righteousness. It has virtue as a part of its uh, makeup. And for a true love to be true love, it has to be consistent with righteousness and justice. So we see then that the true love of God includes judgment, and this is part of his faithfulness and what gives him stability and why we can count on him is he is faithful to himself and his own character. He is consistent. We can always uh, rely upon him. And we can, as we think about faithfulness, a simple word substitution, I think, can bring it home a little bit, and that is the word stability. He is the only thing, the only person that is stable. His word is the only thing that is stable in our lives and the only thing that we can always count on. And he is perfectly faithful in both his blessing and discipline or judgment. This is why Moses early on in Deuteronomy reminds the Israelites of the faithfulness of God. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, he said, Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And then as he concludes Deuteronomy, again he came back to the faithfulness of God. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, he says, He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth. That's the New King James translation. The word that is translated truth or faithfulness is the same word in Hebrew, and it depends on the context as to which way it should go. New American Standard and most modern translations understand it, and I think correctly, to be faithfulness. And it is a reminder that God is going to be true to his covenant, that's where you see that similarity between truth and faithfulness. He's going to be true to his covenant. He's going to be consistent or stable, and he is never going to break that covenant with Israel. Specifically here, the context is the uh, the Mosaic covenant, which was a covenant made, a temporary covenant made by God with the nation Israel until the Lord Jesus Christ would come. And it was designed to govern their their nation during the time leading up to the time when the Lord would, uh, God would provide the Messiah and the Savior. Now that covenant is actually grounded on an earlier covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, which we've studied many times. Three basic provisions in the Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and blessing. God promised the descendants of Abram a specific piece of real estate in the Middle East the real estate that would be bordered by the Mediterranean Sea on the west, the Euphrates on the east, and it is the land that was much larger than any land that Israel ever occupied in its history. Neither David nor Solomon ever fully expanded the borders of the of Israel to that the, the, the borders that God promised to Abraham. Now each of these elements in the Abrahamic covenant were expanded by later covenants, the land promise was expanded by the land promise, the land covenant in Deuteronomy chapter 30. The seed promise is expanded in the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7. And the blessing is expanded in the new covenant of Jeremiah uh, 31. 
Now, this is important to understand. All this is important to understand the background to what happens in Second Kings eight through ten. God is being true to His covenant with Abraham. He's being true to His covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, and He's being true to His covenant with David. Now, we need to look a little more at the Davidic covenant, which is uh, explained more in Second Samuel seven twelve through sixteen, Psalm eighty nine, First Chronicles seventeen eleven to fourteen. God promised David an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. In other words, he promised that in his descendants or seed, there would be one who would occupy the throne of Israel forever and ever. This is at the very center of what is taking place in these events in Second Kings chapter chapters 8 through, uh, through 11 as well. The nation has succumbed to idolatry. They have rejected God, which violated the first commandment in the Mosaic Law, which elevated God to the position of the king of the nation, the ruler of the nation. And so to reject God, to go into idolatry, was in fact the highest form of treason because they were substituting another God for the God who rescued them from Egypt and delivered them uh, at the time of the Exodus. That idolatry led to hostility toward God, which was manifested uh, in its most extreme form in the Baalism, the fertility religions that were brought into the northern kingdom of Israel by the wife of King Ahab. Jezebel, the daughter of the king of Phoenicia, who was also the high priest of Baal worship, uh, she brought her uh, a coterie of false prophets, 400 uh, prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of the uh, 450 prophets of the Asherah, and they basically became a uh, SS type of Einsatzgruppen hit squad to take out all of the believers in the northern kingdom and to impose upon them in an extreme tyrannical manner the false religion, false worship of Baalism. So the house of Ahab introduces this extreme evil into the northern kingdom that destroys the nation. They go through years of judgment and discipline from God as he faithfully applies his promise to discipline them as outlined in the five uh, stages of discipline in Leviticus chapter uh, 26, which we have studied. And God had forewarned them of this judgment and had done this through the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 when Elijah uh, fled down to Mount Horeb and God told him to anoint Hazael, the king of of Assyria, and to anoint Elisha. And that God, what uh, Hazael, who Hazael did not kill, uh, Elisha would kill, and also to anoint Jehu, and what uh, uh, Elisha didn't kill, Jehu would kill, and indicating that there would one day just be this this extreme judgment on the house of Ahab, just completely uh, surgically removing this evil from the kingdom of Israel. And so last time we studied much of that in terms of the whole doctrine of, of uh, God's judgment. And this time I'm looking at this in terms of this particular covenant because not only is the nation threatened, but the seed promise is threatened. 
And that's the ball you really have to keep your eye on as you read through these events in Kings, as well as the parallels in Chronicles, is the protection of the sea. Because Satan, in terms of the ultimate angelic conflict, is seeking and attempting to prevent God from being able to fulfill his promises to uh, Israel in terms of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And so he is trying to wipe out the seed of David and to prevent that from taking place. Now, last time, the last couple of times, I've showed you this chart. On the left side, we have the house of Omri. Omri was Ahab's father who uh, engineered the treaty, of, which included the marriage of Ahab to Jezebel, the treaty with the Phoenicians. And on the right side, we have the line of of David, uh, beginning with Asa. Uh, Asa is the uh, grandson or great-grandson of, actually, of, of uh, Solomon. And Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, in a moment of spiritual uh, weakness and political weakness, entered into an alliance with Ahab, which was uh, secured by a marriage between his son Jehoram and uh, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, Athaliah. So Athaliah now comes, the house of Ahab is introduced into the southern kingdom, the line of the sea. This is the line of David on the right-hand side. Now, who comes into the line of David? Incidentally, she's also in the line of the Messiah. This shows the grace of God. We have Athaliah. Also shows that on that side, uh, you have Ahab and Jezebel are also in the line of the Messiah. In case you hadn't observed that before, that's not stated in Matthew, but nevertheless, that would be true. So you have Ahab uh, and Jezebel and their daughter Athaliah, and now Baalism is brought into the southern kingdom. So like any malignancy that metastasizes, the malignancy of Baalism is now permeating all of the people of God. It is reaching a critical mass, and before it is does irreversible damage, God is going to uh, bring a judgment upon the nation. Now, what has happened within this historical flow is there has been a, an assault upon the house of David. We read in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 21, uh, verses 4 and 7, that when Jehoram, now remember Jehoram is the son of Jehoshaphat, when Jehoram became king over the southern kingdom, he is the one who's married to Athaliah, he strengthened himself and killed all of his brothers with the sword and also all of the other princes of Israel. So there is an assault on the Davidic line and the Davidic seed there as Jehoram sought to wipe them out. Of course, I believe that behind this lies the uh, satanic plot to destroy the the line of the Davidic line and the Davidic seed. And yet we're told in verse 7 of that chapter, yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant which he had made with David. See, that's at the center of understanding all of this. The word says it's because of the covenant with David that God is not going to bring judgment and destroy the house of David and uh, through the line of Jehoram because of the promise that God had made to David. Now, after Jehoram dies, his son Ahaziah comes to the throne. And Jehoram only was on the throne for about eight years, 
Ahaziah comes to the throne, he's so bad he doesn't even last a year uh, before he is executed by by Jehu. And in Second Chronicles 21, 8 and 9, we're told it came about when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, remember, at the, at the order of the Lord. He found the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers ministering to Ahaziah and slew them. Now, this, they are also part of the line of David. But this is at the direction of the Lord because this part of the line has been so egregiously affected by the evil of Ahab. They are part of the house and lineage of Ahab, and so there has to be this this uh, destruction of Ahaziah and his brothers. But we're really narrowing now, narrowing down the number of uh, of men who are in the line of the seed, aren't we? It's getting sort of thin. But we have to remember that it's not just a few generations. There have been seven generations since David. Uh, David's son Solomon was on the throne. Of course, David had several wives and many other sons besides Solomon. Uh, Solomon had uh, many wives and concubines. He had numerous uh, sons as well. Uh, Rehoboam was the one who took his place on the throne. He reigned for 17 years. He had many uh, sons and daughters as well. He was succeeded by Abijam. And we're told that um, Abijam had 22 sons and daughters. So you go back several generations, there's now quite a number of descendants of David, but they are being uh, systematically executed in a number of these uh, pogroms that are taking place uh, against the house of David. Uh, Asa was the good king who was the uh, father of um, the father of Jehoshaphat. And then, and, and he and Jehoshaphat, as well as Jehoram, had other sons as well. These are all being systematically executed. Now, when Ahaziah was executed by Jehu, his mother, the queen mother, becomes the queen. Because Ahaziah was rather young at the time, and so his children were still infants. There were other cousins and distant cousins who were also around uh, around Jerusalem. And so when Athaliah took the throne, she decided she needed to clean house to protect herself and her power base. And so we're told in Second Kings 11, verse 1, that when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. So she is really cleaning house at this point, and it looks as if the house of David, the seed of David, is in extreme jeopardy, and the Davidic covenant is in jeopardy. However, God is in control. Just when your life looks like it's the biggest mess it's ever been and everything's falling apart around you, never forget that God is still there, God is still in control, and God still has a plan. And God had a plan. And God had Jehoshaphat, who was the daughter of King Jehoram. She was a believer. She's the sister of Ahaziah. So she is also the uh, daughter of, of um, Athaliah. But she is married to the priest. She is married to Jehoiada, who is the high priest. And so she realizes what Athaliah is doing. And she goes and she rescues Joash, who is an, the infant son of Ahaziah, 
and she hid him away, uh, hid him away uh, from Athaliah so that he was not killed. And in verse 3 tells us he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord that is in the temple by Jehoiada for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. Now, this put all of the priest's life in danger. They're hidden probably in a subterranean chamber on the temple mount and protected there by God and by the priesthood. And Jehoiada was very wise, and we're told in uh, subsequent passages that he had informed certain military leaders, certain other princes and and, uh, the Levites and priests of the existence of Joash, and they protected the secret, and they protected him uh, during this time until it was time for him uh, to become king. And it was during that time that Jehoiada taught and trained Joash, and he became his, his wise counselor. And because he was taught by this believer, and because he was taught the word while he was sequestered and hidden away in the temple, this provided a basis for a subsequent blessing on the nation, at least until Jehoiada died. When the high priest died, lived to be 130 years old, when he finally died, Joash made a major turn, brought the nation back into idolatry. But this shows at least initially, the grace of God in protecting, providing for the house uh, of David in the southern kingdom. It shows his grace and his faithfulness that no matter how bad things looked, no matter how destructive things had been, God was still working. And nobody knew what was going on. And that's true in our lives, that we see these horrible circumstances that take place around us, they may be and come in many different forms related to jobs, career, education, family, health, whatever it may be, whatever the crisis is that you face. But God is working. You don't know what else is going on and how God's grace is providing in many different ways. We do have the promises of God that we can go to and the word of God that we can go to, and that is what gives us real comfort in the midst of crisis. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 is a favorite promise of many people. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We always have to remember the essence of God and go back to who he is and what he has done for us. Think through each category of his, of his attributes, that, and that lies behind the promise of Psalm 91, 4. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth, that is the word of God, is your shield and buckler. And it is the word of God that protects us. It was the word of God that provided protection in the southern kingdom through Jehoiada and his wife, uh, Jehoshabeth, and it is because it is the word of God that is the only source of real stability because it is through the word of God that we know who God is and we know that he controls the circumstances and details of our life and he can provide the perfect solution. Next time we'll come back and we will look at how the word of God impacted the change that occurred in the southern kingdom of Judah with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. 
Father, we are so thankful that we can be reminded today of your faithfulness. You never change. You're true to your word. You're true to your character. You are true to the covenants that you have made with Abraham, with David, with Israel. And though the covenants and promises belong to Israel, the blessing is ours because of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. Father, we pray this morning that if there's anyone here that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He died in your place. He died for you on the cross. Scripture says that that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. Our righteousness is never good enough, will never qualify us for eternal life or for heaven, for God's blessing. It is Christ's righteousness imputed to us at the instant that we believe that Jesus died for us. It is on the basis of his righteousness that we are declared just, and it is on the basis of his righteousness that we are blessed. And we have been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places because of what Christ did for us and on the basis of our position in him. We pray that if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, that you would take this opportunity to trust in him, to believe that he died for you, and that he has provided everything for you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us as believers to focus more upon who you are and upon your character, your attributes, to reflect on these things as we face the vicissitudes of life, as we face the challenges, the surprises that come our way, that we might be reminded that they do not surprise you and that they were part of your plan from eternity past, and therefore we can relax and trust in you and look at these circumstances as opportunities to uh, proclaim the gospel, to demonstrate your grace in our lives, and that we may glorify you before not only mankind, but also before the angels. Pray that you would challenge us with what we've learned and studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.